All right, Billboard Church, John chapter 1 is where we're going to be, so I'm going to say that for the next like 21 weeks, is take your Bible or take your Bible device or whatever it is you have God's Word and go to John chapter 1. We will be there in a minute, and if you're uh, watching online, I want to say hello to the folks watching from Nashville, Tennessee, Savannah, Georgia, Allentown, Allentown, Pennsylvania, Prince Albert, Canada, and specifically to the Wines family in Winter Springs, Florida. All right, put your hands together and tell them thank you for joining us from different parts. All right, here's the, uh, here's the deal, uh, Gospel of John. We could spend five years in this. There's 21 chapters, we've got 21 weeks, and so we are gonna, we are gonna go through this thing. We're trying to be selective in trying to see where the places we wanna sort of land because it's so... In some ways, it's so simple, and in other ways, it's so deep. Uh, the, the theologian by a guy named Augustine or Augustine, he said it this. He said, the book of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. In other words, he's like, you know what? If you're, a, if you're not a believer, the book of John is for you. If you're a brand new believer, this is where I would always send somebody. It's like, go open up the gospel of John. By the way, those journals, they have the gospel of John, the whole book, so Challenge will be this summer between now and when school starts back in the fall. We're going to just be in the Gospel of John. I would challenge you, just make that your next four months. When you read the Bible, read in the Gospel of John, all right? Well, when I get tired of it, you will not. You will not. It is deep enough for the most mature believer and simple enough for the person that's not even a Christ follower yet. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the two most important books in the Bible are John and the book of Romans. It says, John tells us what Jesus did and the book of Romans tells us why it matters so much. And so uh, sometimes when you start off a book and you start off a journey, it's good to ask some questions like, who wrote it, why did he write it? Those kinds of things. So a couple of kind of introductory remarks. John tells us why he writes the book, just so you know. He tells us, don't turn there, but the theme of the book is in the 20th chapter, the second to the last one, and here's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So he's telling us right off the bat, these are pictures. This is not a motion picture. I mean, think about it this way. The Gospels are all pictures, not, not video. If you were to do a video of Jesus' life, it would take 33 years of watching everything that happened during his 33 years plus here on the earth. But what there are is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are snapshots, there are pictures, there are conversations, there are meetings that took place. All those things that took place, that's part of what John wrote for. And here's, here's the reason he wrote it. The next verse says, but these are written so that you may believe. It's the word we looked at on Easter, pastuo, that you may pastuo, you may believe, you may trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so twofold purpose of this book. One full purpose of it is evangelistic in nature. About the first 12 chapters are about conversations. It covers about three years of time. And for 12 chapters, there are conversations that take place. There are things that Jesus does that take place that shows people converting to become a follower of Jesus. Conversations he had as people move from unbelief to belief. Great examples both for the Christian and the non-Christian. The whole book revolves a lot around seven particular signs or miracles that Jesus did and kind of authenticating for people out there to say, this is the son of God. This is the son of God. Chapter two is the first one, turning the water into wine. Then you go into different things like feeding of the 5,000. Those are seven signs and we'll see that word over and over again. 
But part of it's also a sanctification purpose. And the purpose is this. There are some of the richest teachings on how do I walk with Jesus as a believer? How do I make a difference? All right, the, the last few chapters, it's like it goes into slow motion as we get into the, the trial and as we get into the floggings and as we get into the crucifixion and as we get into the resurrection. And then there's like a chapter, which is chapter 21, which is almost like a, you know, the, the ending that you don't even expect is there. But at this point, John is, uh, John's an old man at this point. John was one of the inner circle. I mean, if you think about uh, followers of Jesus, you kind of have the crowd, you have the committed, and you have the core. But Jesus spoke to all three. He spoke to, the, he spoke to the crowd. I mean, there's numerous times where thousands and thousands and thousands of people would come and listen to him. That's the crowd. Then you had the committed, which you could say are the 12 disciples that you hear so much about. But then there was, there was the core that was actually like the inner three, Peter, James, and John. This is one of them right here, John. Or this is not, by the way, you see another John referred to. Actually, we'll see him more next week. But John is, there's, there's a bunch of Johns, but this is John the apostle. This is that inner third. This is prob, arguably the closest friend of Jesus while Jesus was here on earth. There's another John called John the Baptist, which by the way, that's not even the greatest term, John the Baptist. It's not like we have John the Baptist and Pete the Presbyterian and Mike the Methodist. We don't have that. It's like, it's really John is a baptizer. It's what John did. It's what you see today when you see people being baptized. That's what John did. And we'll, we'll talk about that sometime in the days ahead as well. So uh, here's um, the question that he's trying to attack is John lives in a time where people were not just attacking the church, but they were attacking about who, who Jesus really was. I mean, who is Jesus? Because enough years had passed. Again, John's an old man. Years had passed. Decades had passed. Other gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke. But John comes along and it's like, okay, I'm going to write it from a different perspective that we'll talk about. But he's answering the question at the very start, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Because people are starting to bring up all sorts of crazy ideas. I mean, you and I see this. We see this on magazine covers and we see this on our phones, especially during Easter and Christmas. Here's a couple from, uh, you know, not too distant past. This is our good friends in National Geographic, the real Jesus, what archaeology reveals about his life. In other words, we've, we found something that it, people look for for 2,000 years, but to sell magazines, we have found the real Jesus. All right, here's another one. And, uh, you, know, you know, who do you say that I am? That's actually a great question. It's actually the question. It's actually the most important question you'll ever ask. It's the question that you'll see Jesus asking his disciples, kind of their final exam. Who do you say that I am? Here's another one. Uh, this is the Crazy Time magazine cover. Who, who was Jesus? And they've got, I appreciate the fact they just don't have the golden-haired, blue-eyed, European Jesus. I just appreciate that fact. But here's the, probably the coolest one. This is hipster Jesus right here. All right, that's, that's, that's hipster Jesus. And... Uh, it's like, all right, this is the, you know, the ironic world of hipster faith. And so who is Jesus? So that's how the gospel of John is going to start out. And let me tell you, right, you're going to have some, this is an example of some of this is so simple and some of it you have got to put your big boy theological pants on. Agreed? So here it is. John chapter one, starting in verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what I tried to do is like, how do you take something that rich, that deep, and how do you whittle these down to a couple of main thoughts? And so here's thought number one. I got two of them today. Principle number one. Principle number one is this is teaching us that he is creator. He is creator. I am made by him. He is creator. I am made, and you almost want to say I am made by him, and I am made, I am made for him. Now, right off the bat, Matthew writes it from a perspective of a Jewish person. And he writes it to, if you notice the way Matthew starts his gospel off with all this genealogy, why? Because he was writing primarily or at least initially to Jewish people trying to tie. He's like, this is the Messiah. John's writing it from a different perspective. He doesn't go back to Bethlehem like Luke does. He goes back, 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 way back, and it says in the beginning. And so John chapter 1 sounds a whole lot like Genesis chapter 1. And what he says back, and by the way, the, the Bible just declares that Jesus is the creator. It doesn't defend it. We've talked about that before. We talked about it, I think, in like message number two of the year of the Bible. We talked about all the different ways that you can see it within a, with biblical integrity. But right now, what he says is like, in the beginning, in the beginning, there was the word. Now, let me, this is pretty fascinating because you're like, what is the word? What's the word? And people have all this. Understand this. Remember Bible study is, Bible study is who is the initial audience, what did it mean to them, then what does it mean now, and then what does it mean to me personally? All right, that's basically what you do in Bible study. You try to get the context, which means, all right, what did it mean to the initial people who heard it? Then you go, okay, what does it mean now? What are the principles that are transferable? And then you ask, what does it mean to me personally? And so what did it mean to them? At this point in time, the Christian church was more Greek than it was Jew. What I mean by that is, initially those early followers of Jesus were Jews. But eventually what happened, by the time John writes his gospel, there are more Greeks that have converted to Christ than there were Jews that have converted to Christ. And so what he does is John sort of exegetes his culture and he uses a word that the Greeks would have understood and it's the word word or logos, logos, L-O-G-O-S. Now in the Greek mind, in the Greek mind, not that they were thinking this way because it's early in, the, early in the Christian church, but for the Greek mind, they grew up with the word logos, which was an idea of sort of that undefined force out there that, hails, that holds everything together. To the Greek mind, they had been brought up way before Plato, way before Aristotle. They were actually thinking, you know what? Somebody taught us like the logos is that which holds everything together. It's that which makes sense. And so what John does is talking to the Greeks and the Jews, because the Jews would have understood the word of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God spoke and everything happened. And so he talks to both audiences and he says, you know who the word is? You know who the Logos are, Greeks? Do you know who the word are, Jews? Old Testament, you're, 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 you know that? You know who that is? It's like, that's Jesus. The creative agent is Jesus. That which holds everything together is Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches over and over again. That's why when people say, well, Jesus never really claims to be God. The Bible doesn't claim Jesus is God. That is baloney. As a matter of fact, you'll see a bunch of I am statements in the gospel of John. I am is the covenant name for God. And so he's like, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. All those things, those are declarations of deity, just like this is. Colossians 1 says this, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Listen, I was, a, I was a finance major. I wasn't a 
biology major. I wasn't any of those majors. So I don't, I didn't, but it is fascinating to kind of learn about this stuff. And I read this week this. I read this week that, that physicists are still confused at how the atom holds together. It says the nucleus of the atom contains positively charged protons which should repel each other like two positively charged magnets repel each other. But they're like, there's something mysterious, invisible, physicists say, that holds them together. And here's what it is. They say there's some invisible force stronger than the electromagnetic force that holds them together. They don't know what this is and they don't know what to call it, so they call it simply, quote, the stronger force. The stronger force. Not creative, but they're scientists, all right? So all they're saying is, it's just something that holds everything together. And what Paul says in Colossians 1 is that's Jesus. And what John is starting off by saying is, listen, that's Jesus that holds everything together. And then you just think about it the way that he made you. I love the way the psalmist puts it. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you just think about that for a minute. Do you know that uh, your heart beats enough with enough pressure that it can squirt your blood for 30 feet? All right, now don't try it. I'm just saying it, will, it can happen, all right? If 30 feet, that's impressive. That is impressive. Do you know that when you get cold and you get goosebumps, when you get goosebumps, some of you are like, yeah, like right now. I'm just saying, but you get, you get goosebumps. You know what that's doing? You know what that's doing? That is your body trying to keep your heat in to warm you up. How cool is that? How cool is that? How about this? Do you know that there is 2.5 million, your brain has enough storage for 2.5 gigabytes of information, 2.5 million. It's like, you know what, like the latest update of an iPhone is? It's like 500, 500 versus like 2.5 million. You're like, well, honey, I feel smart today. Well, good, because you should, God made you, God made you. It says your brain is the most powerful computer the world has ever known. And so when you look at all that, you're like, well, if, if he made me, there should be some implications. Look at verse four. It says, in him was life. In him was life. Physical life, eternal life, and also abundant life, as John is gonna say. Here's what it is. It's the idea of because we were made by God, we find our meaning in God. Here's what you gotta understand, and we go back to this repeatedly, is you were made in such a way is where you don't find your meaning unless you find your meaning in God. I mean, uh, Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into our hearts. A guy named Blaise Pascal says God has shaped the human heart in such a way as there's a God-shaped vacuum in which only God can fill. And when you look at different, C.S. Lewis had a famous quote, he said this, he said, a baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I was thinking about that. It's like, that's why all the good stuff we have, no matter how good it is, it is good and it is fun. But you know how there's always a little bit of lacking to it. There's always a sense, no matter how good something is, at some point you usually say, man, is that it? And the reason is, is we continually look to be fully and finally satisfied in something other than God. And it's not bad stuff, it's usually good stuff that we try to make ultimate stuff. So let me just preach to myself for a few minutes. When you look at this, it's not like it's 25 different things. It's like five different things we always choose 
to go down these roads. One of them, again, is one of them would just put stuff. And let me be clear, new stuff is intoxicating. New stuff is, I got some new cabinets at my house. I got a little study upstairs. I got some new cabinets. I go up there now just to, I don't even know what I'm smelling. I'm smelling either wood or stain or something. I just go, makes me study better. Just smelling the wood. It's like, it's I love it. I used to never go up there. Now I'm like, I gotta go up there. Come on, Ranger, let's go up there. It's just, it's intoxicating. But so are what? Trinkets and toys, gears and gadgets, all that stuff. It is intoxicating. But when we kind of take a step back, you know, you understand how new stuff gets old so quickly now? I mean, new stuff gets old so quick. It's almost like the high of the new has not even worn off before where like something newer has come out. Newer phone, newer trinket, newer gear. And at some point, we're kind of like, man, I know what I just really, really wanted. It's two years down the road, it's going to be on the curb. It's going to be in the recycling bucket. It's going to be down at Smiley's at the, at the flea market. It's going to be somebody else is going to get this for a dollar at my garage sale. But like I had to have it. Matt Chandler, I think, is the first one I heard him coin this. Is he called this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And it's not, that, it's not that stuff is stupid. It's that we're stupid. It's not that stuff is wrong. It's that we try to make it do for us what it was never designed to do. It's stuff. And by the way, it's not just stuff. It's just pure, it's just pure coins. It's just, it's just coins too. Some of us get our security from logging in every single day and checking where our stocks are every single day and seeing what your equity is every single day and you kind of see where that is. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not gonna do anything for your soul. And you're like, oh, I don't believe that. And by the way, money's good. We, talk about, we don't talk about it a ton, but money's good. Money's great. Money's, money's fine. Be a good steward of it. Try to plan in such a way as you can give some to your kids when you die. Bottom line, it's not gonna do anything for your soul. You're like, I don't believe you. It does something for my soul. Well, wait until you get that call from that doctor. How much security is that gonna give you when the doctor calls and said the cancer is back? It's none. And you just, here's another one we really go for nowadays is just the approval and the opinions of others. It is like crack cocaine, social media. It's like some of you are like on Facebook and that, or not on Facebook and it's like, you're blessed, all right? The rest of us, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Instagram or whatever, and you check it constantly and it's like you make a post and you got a ton of people liking it and it makes you feel, it's like a dopamine hit and it makes you feel better. But then you do something, you pour out your heart and you get like three likes and you're like, oh man, I stink on ice. And it like depresses you. Don't they understand how awesome I am? Here's what you got to understand. By the way, this goes, and I'm going to be as frank as I can. <clears throat> One of the biggest lessons we can all learn is when you look to other people's opinion for your self-worth, that is, you are chasing your tail. You're chasing... <laughs> You're chasing a carrot you will never get. What you've got to get at some point in your mind is, I've been made in the image of God with a God-shaped box in the center of my chest and Jesus fills it. And if I could be, young ladies, let me just, let Uncle Bruce talk to you for a second. That's the, this is the core issue. Listen, I love you and I can say this to you. This, the core, that's the core issue of why you've had three boyfriends in six months. The reason you've had three boyfriends in six months is you're looking for something in that person 
that they were never designed to give. And if I can just say it as well, because uh, when you need their approval so bad, you do things that make you feel cheap and they say things they don't mean in order to take from you, not give to you. And then you feel less and you feel more alone than you did before that. And the reason is there's no guy that can heal the scar and the wound in your heart. And until you enter into a covenant with God first and with a man before God, there's no physical intimacy that's ever gonna fill that. Let me just, while we're at it, young men, you thought you could treat a girl as a commodity? You thought you could play the field? You thought you could just use her up and take the emotions out of it? Thought that'd make you more of a man? And yet, if you're honest, you feel more like a little boy. And uh, you've stolen what's not yours. And young men, unless you're, until you're willing, until you're willing to lay down your life for a lady and not just take from her, you're not ready to, you're not ready to spend time with one of God's daughters. You're just not. And the reason we do it is because it's like, I gotta have that approval. Gotta have that. And what God says is, you know, I didn't design you that way. That's a good gift that you've made into a God. And here's the way he says it. He says, the light shines in the darkness. I love this, the light shines in the darkness. So Jesus is gonna come into the dark, sin-filled world, and he's gonna light it up. He's gonna heal people, he's gonna transform people, he's gonna make somebody who is greedy like Zacchaeus, he's gonna make him generous. He's gonna take somebody who is religious like Nicodemus and he's gonna make him have a relationship with God. So he changes people, he heals people, he forgives people, he takes away people's shame, he does all of that. But interestingly enough, do you remember when he's crucified, the one time it gets dark? When does it get dark? It gets dark when he's crucified. Bible says the world became dark, why? Because he was taking our sin debt on himself. But John tells you the end at the beginning and look at it and underline it in your Bible. The darkness does not overcome it. The darkness does not overcome it. And what he's saying is, listen, Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a great man. He's not just a great religious leader. He is God in the flesh and he wins. And he wins. The fact that the tomb is empty but the throne is occupied has to be something you know every day. Because when life caves in, and it will, when life caves in at some point, you do not need a precious moments, sentimental Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair, stroking your palm, giving you Christian cliches like when the tough gets going, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. No, you need a resurrected, exalting, sitting on the throne, God, man, that's who you need. And that's who John presents. John's like, that's who Jesus is. He made you, he is the creator. And then he, skip a few verses down to verse 14. And it's like he runs, John is like so amazed and he's talking about his best friend, verse 14. And he continues the theme of the word and he's like, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We'll come back to that. John bore witness about him. That's John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is actually about six months older. It's like, you know what? There's a lot of humility. You're gonna see one place is like, you know what? I'm not even willing to like carry his gym bag. I'm just not. 
There's a humility that the gospel brings. That's why when you see an arrogant Christian, sometimes when you see these arrogant Christians and it's kind of done in such a way as they act like, I'm not arrogant, I just believe real strongly. Well, actually, you're just arrogant a lot of times, all right? Arrogance, arrogance, I mean, ha, but for the grace of God go I. What did the Apostle Paul say? I am the foremost of sinners. You can be like super strong without being arrogant. Why? Because the gospel promotes humility. You see it in John the Baptist. Look at verse 16. For from him, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, second point. First one is, he is creator. I was made for him and I was made by him. Second point would be this. He is the savior. He is the savior. I am here to glorify him. That's what I'm here for. So look what he says. He says, the word became flesh. At Christmas time, theologians call that the incarnation, that this is 100% God and 100% man. Church, the most important miracle that ever took place was the resurrection, for sure. Most important miracle was that Jesus came up out of the grave, but the most stunning miracle has to be the incarnation, that God became a man, that he lived and he hurt and he bled and then he died that's unbelievable, that's stunning. And John doesn't even know how to describe it and all he ends up saying is like, we've seen his glory. Now glory is a good word that oftentimes sounds real preacherish and real churchish. So let me kind of break it down a little bit. The word glory is the word doxa. Doxa, which means literally weight. Weight, it's like, man, God has got a lot of weight. So when you say somebody carries great weight with you, that's kind of what you're saying. But if you look at the end of the passage, what does it say? It says nobody gets to see God Nobody gets to see God, but he just got through saying what? God has been in the flesh, the incarnation. So here's another way to look at it. The glory of God is evidence that God is at work. It's evidence that God is at work. We don't see God, we see the fact that God's glory or God is, it's evidence, it's like light to a bulb. Let me give you about four ways this happens. One of them, the most clear way, is obviously in Jesus Christ. That's who it is, that God became a man. That's what John's saying. It's like we, we can't see God the Father, but we see God the Son, and that is God's glory. The glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, and it says he is full of grace and truth. Now, let, let me, let me, we always need to take a few minutes and kind of go over this. Because in verse 17, it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? And he's saying Jesus is full of grace and truth. By the way, grace is not the same as mercy. We're gonna sing a song here in a minute called Mercy. You sang it a little while ago. Mercy is actually God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is I'm going to give you my righteousness. Mercy is I'm not gonna give you the wrath that you deserve. We'll come back to that. But it says he's full of grace and truth. Moses brought the law, grace and truth came by Jesus. So what is the law, think 10 commandments, the way we've said it a hundred times, the way people have said it down through the years is the law is to be a map and a mirror. When I say the law, you can think 10 commandments, basically you can think anything between Genesis and Malachi, you can think it that way. But specifically all the do's and don'ts and all those kind of law, there's ceremonial law, there's civil law, there's moral law, there's all that stuff in the Old Testament. How do I look at that? One of the ways you look at it is as a map. You look at it as a map, a map of this is the way God designed life to work. 
So even the Ten Commandments, when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not like God's up in heaven going, oh, I'm trying to keep the fun away from me. He's like, I'm trying to protect you. And even now, why do we, follow, why do we obey God? Because we love God, but also God's protecting us from the, some of the consequences of our sin. But what you gotta understand is it's a mirror. It's a mirror. It's a mirror so that we look at the mirror and it shows us that we've broken the law. So for example, think about a speed limit. When you think about a speed limit, how do you know, how do you know you've broken the speed limit? Some of you are like, I just know. Okay, the reason you know you've broken the speed limit is because you compare how fast you're going or your speedometer to the speed limit. All right, so some of you, let's say the speed limit is 30, and let's say your speedometer is saying 60. What that's showing is, you're going to jail, but what that's really showing is, what that's really showing is that you know what, here's the standard, 30 miles an hour, and I've chosen to break the standard. And the only reason I knew that is because there was a standard, 30 miles an hour, right? If the sign didn't say 30 miles an hour, but said, drive carefully, <laughs> that's subjective. That means different things to different people, all right? Some of you all would go 30. Some of you all would go 130, all right? Because why? It's just like, well, it's just, I don't know what that means. I'm driving carefully, going above 30. But what happens is he's like, this is the standard. When God says one, two, three, and gives us 10, he's like, all right, you've broken all of those. Now, here's the part that I jotted down. I was like, this is so important. Depending on how you grew up, and I don't know, I mean, some of you all hadn't been in this church before. Some of you didn't grow up in church and knew the Bible study, and some of you grew up in a church, and you're like, man, I, I just, I felt so terrible. And there's a time when that's called, sometime that's called conviction, okay? all right? God brings conviction, again, to bring you to himself. But the gospel is not, and this is important for you to understand, when it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the gospel is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder, come back next week. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, you're terrible, God's good, do better, see you next Sunday. That's not the gospel. The gospel is an announcement. It's not even advice, it's not a philosophy, it's not behavior modification. What it is, it, the gospel is an announcement about what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago. And that if people repent and turn to him, all of his righteousness gets put to their account and all of their sin gets put to his account. That is an announcement. And so how does, that, how does God get glory? He gets it through Jesus Christ. He gets, it through, he gets it through creation. He gets it through creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You know, if the earth or if the sun was like 2% closer to us, we would like, we'd fry like bacon, 2%. You know, if it's like 2% further away from us, we'd freeze, all right? We'd freeze up like a Baptist business meeting. That's what would happen, all right? <laughs> if, uh, if the earth was tilted differently, temperatures would be crazy. The tides would be different. Here's what I learned this week. The way Jupiter, Jupiter's orbit and Jupiter's placement, Jupiter is placed in such a way, astrologers say, they say if it was placed a little bit different, the earth would have been wiped out by like 10,000 asteroids. And it's like Jupiter's put in the perfect place with the sun in the perfect place, with the rotation of the perfect place, with the tilt in the perfect place, 
And be honest, us here in the 828, it should not take that long for us to be able to step outside and look out and go, man, that is glory. When you go up to Triple Falls, you should not thank Mother Nature. Oh, we had Mother Nature, great. No, you ought to thank Father God. That's who you ought to thank. That's who you ought to say, man, look, glory, look what God did. When you go up to Max Patch, what you do, look what God, look what God did. Look what God did. You give glory for what God did. Listen, we of all people, we know, I was watching the movie yesterday afternoon for like 30 minutes and I watch it only because I'm like, they filmed that right here. It's like Hunger Games. I know it's a sick movie, but it's like, but it's got awesome scenery. And one of them is like, I saw Triple Falls. And I'm like, that's where I get to live. That's where I get to live. So I didn't bow my knee and thank Mother Nature. I just said, man, glory to God, I get to live in a place like this. The Christian, God gets glory from the Christian. First Corinthians, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what does that look like? That looks like uh, those of you that are bosses, you have people that answer to you. You glorify, it says everything, so you glorify God by the way that you treat your power. How do you leverage, how do you steward the responsibility God's given you as a boss or head of a company? How do you treat people? Glorify God in everything. How do you act on, how do you, how do you act on, how do you act on Twitter? How do you act on that? That's a way to glorify God. John 15 says we glorify God when we bear much fruit. Matthew 5 says we glorify God when we do good works. So example, when, when you help people get a house that have lost their house during a flood, that glorifies God. When you sponsor a compassion child, that glorifies God. When you trust God when all hell breaks loose, that glorifies God. When you thank God when all heaven breaks loose in your life, that glorifies God. Let me give you one more, and this is more of a kind of a congregational challenge. God gets the glory by the personal work of Jesus for sure, clearest for sure. Secondly, he gets it in creation. Again, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. He gets it from the individual Christian for sure. It's like whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all for what? For the glory of God, whether you're coaching a baseball team, whether you're leading a company, do it for the glory of God. But Bible says the church is a way that we glorify God. If you look in John 1, all throughout this, there's a whole bunch of us's, there's a whole bunch of we's, there's 59 one another's. Ephesians 3 says to him, to Jesus, be glory in the church. Be glory in the church throughout all the generations forever and ever and ever. So here's what's happening. What is whispered by creation and what is spoken by Christians should be shouted by the church. You know what? God is at work. That's what God did. So as a church, how does that look? It happens when you see testimonies. When you see testimonies of God at work, that's how it happens. This is what God did. God restored our marriage. God helped me break this addiction. When people get baptized, can I just, let me push in a little bit here. Everybody thinks baptism is secondary. Everybody thinks baptism is secondary. Oh, it's kind of cool they got baptized. Do I have to get baptized? I get this question. Do I have to get baptized to go to heaven? No, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. The question is, why would you want to go to heaven without being baptized? And what I mean by that is, baptism is your coming out party. Baptism is your symbol. I'm on team Jesus now. And when you're like, well, I prayed to receive Christ during this service or at Easter or whatever, that's all well and good. 
But the profession of faith that you make is not walking an aisle. It's not telling a friend. It's getting put under water to say the old me has been put under the water. The new me has come out. That's, that's what it is. And Arden particularly, let me just, Arden, there's like 250 of y'all that have made some profession of faith that have never followed through in baptism. For those of you at Hendersonville and Brevard, I want the record to show there was zero amens at Arden when I said that. There's not one, there's not one. How do we glorify God when you're here on time and you come in fired up and you're sitting on this front row and you're like super fired up and like you don't even have to be fired up. Doesn't matter what that first song was like, man, I am, I am ready to go. It's when, you, uh, it's when you pray before the services. It's when you pray during the services. It's when you line these benches that are here and just cry out to God for God to do what only God can do. I'll tell you one last thing it is. It's also, it's also the way that you and I worship congregationally. Now listen to me, church. Worship is not all we do. That's not all we do. That's 72 minutes on a Sunday. That's what we do. 72 minutes. There's like 167 hours other than that one hour during a week. And so a couple of things, that these 72 minutes are gonna be prayed on and planned on and prepared for as much as anything else we do. And it's not because this is all we do, but this is the furnace that provides the heat to all the other ministries. If it's dead in here, all the other stuff we do, the homes we build, the children we sponsor, the partners that we have, all that stuff starts to fade because you know what worship is? Worship is my head focusing, my brain focusing on how awesome Jesus is. It's my heart pouring out, man, you're worth more. One of the greatest worship statements in the whole Bible, next week he says this, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what worship is. God is more, maximization of God, minimization of myself. And so when you look at worship, when you start to see that happen and joy returns, pride gets conquered, people get saved, marriages get restored, all that stuff happens, but it happens with us worship. Worshiping is, it's, not, it's more than singing, it's more than singing, but singing's a part of it. Singing's a part of it. Here's, here's, here's I'll give you two examples and then we'll practice. Some of you watching, you've walked with the Lord a long time. I would press in, I've walked with the Lord for a long time. I've been a Christian well over 30 years. I remember sitting on a balcony in Fort Worth, Texas as a relatively new believer. I've probably been a believer five years at that point. Came a believer right before college and then right after college, you went off to seminary. So that's probably like a five-year-old Christian at that point. I remember sitting up on a balcony with a hymn book. What was the... Uh, there is a fountain. That was the, that was the deal. I didn't know any of these hymns. I didn't read any of them growing up. I didn't know any of the songs. There was no such thing as Christian radio back then. None of that stuff. But I remember being moved to, t I mean, just weeping over the fact that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And it emotively moved me. And you know what can happen now? What can happen now is I can sit here and listen to music done 50 times better, just as theologically correct, and sit over in that seat bickering and angry because the drum wasn't right. Hey, don't laugh. Don't, don't laugh, some of y'all are laughing. I've seen the way some of y'all worship. 
And it's like, it's like two old people, you got used to being married and you just sit there and look at each other. Guys have seen you sometime, you've been married for a while and you go out in the parking lot. No, I see the way you do it. When you were dating, when you were newly married, you used to open up that car door, help her in, call her the first year of marriage if you were gonna be 10 minutes late, bring roses, all that stuff. And now what happens is you gotta have like something on your daytimer telling you when her birthday is. What happened? You didn't kindle that thing up and it's starting to get really lax. And I would say the same thing is true with worship. Sometimes. If you were up here Friday, or if you were up here Saturday, you got 600 kids, half of them hadn't been a believer more than a couple of years. And they're on their face before Almighty God, hands up, voices raised, weeping, seeing their friends saved, and you're like, well, that's just a phase. Yeah, that's a phase you don't ever wanna grow out of. My question would be this is, are you sitting there like this? Are you sitting there like that? Which one are you? Because here's, here's the deal, I, I, can't, I thought about this just this weekend. Some of you are like at 211 degrees, that's where you are. 211 degrees is just enough to kind of be hot water, that's where you are. And I know we grew up in different personalities, different upbringings, liturgical, brand new, you're not sure, you know, touchdown Jesus, you're not sure what, you're not sure of all this stuff. My challenge to you would be to turn that thing up one more degree, because at two, 212 degrees, water starts to boil, in 211, there's no energy, there's no power, there's no movement. You turn it up to 212, that thing starts to boil and it can move a locomotive. And what I'm telling and challenging us is a church. You can't make the church do it, but you're part of a church. Turn that thing up, wherever it is you are, turn that thing up a degree or so with your mind, with your heart. It's like my head, my heart. In my hands, you're like, well, you're trying to have us be Baptocostal. All I'm trying to tell you to do is just do what the Bible says. The Bible says to do a bunch of stuff with your hands. It does. Lift up holy hands, clap your hands. Nowhere in there does it say, fold your hands and look judgmentally on somebody next to you. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. So here's what my challenge to you. We're gonna sing a song. We're gonna sing a song called Mercy. You sang it a few minutes ago. This is not for you, this is not for me to watch Great singers sing a great song. This is for the sons and daughters of God to bring glory to God by the Spirit of God worshiping God. That's what it is. So when we talk about response, we can do it a bunch of different ways. For some of us, it is gonna be doing something vocally that you hadn't done before. You're like, well, I, I just you know, I don't like to sing. All right, just whatever. Take it up with Jesus, all right? He says he wants to hear you. Others of you, this is a time to turn that up and maybe you come and pray at the front of the church. You're like, man, I've never done that before. Well, turn it up to 212. Just turn it up. Some of you, it's about giving. All right, this is the time where you're like, oh, I gotta give. We're not passing, we're not even passing something. Maybe this is where you get online, where you just, whatever, you commit to being a good, whatever that is, but here's the, what you, here's the only thing outlawed. The only thing outlawed is uh, to get up and leave, because I saw how long I preached last week, and this is not this week, so I've already shortened it enough time to make sure you don't have to go. And you can't, and you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there and whatever. 
So here's what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna give you a little time. I'm gonna do a quick prayer. I'm gonna say amen. And whether you're in Hendersonville, Brevard, West, East, Franklin, doesn't matter where you are, three choices. Sing your guts out. I'm talking about miss notes kind of singing. Miss them, miss them. All right. Secondly, you know, kind of move, you can give. Thirdly, you come and pray. Some of you, that's actually what needs to happen. You need to come up and pray and say, you know what, God? My business is for the glory of God. My life is for the glory of God. My money is for the glory of God. This past weekend at Wake Weekend, it's for the glory of God. My yes is on the table, it's for the glory of God. Father, I want to do thanks for what we saw you do. Thanks to the church, we get a front row seat seemingly every week to see the glory of God, evidence that you were at work. Baptisms, testimonies, life change. God, help us never, never, help us to never not long for that. God, our prayer is the next three or four minutes you would receive glory by the prayers, by the worship, by the generosity of your people. God, convict us, convict us of the lack of passion and purpose in any of those areas. God, our prayers the next four months would be the most spiritually enriching journey that we've ever had as a church and individuals. God, thank you for the mercy of God. We deserve to be six feet under. We deserve to be nailed to that cross. That's what we deserved. But as a church, we wanna say thank you for the mercy of God that that was my cross you took. That was my shame you took. That was my guilt you took. And so we as a people wanna commit that the next three or four minutes, we wanna tell you how appreciative that we are for what you did. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.